Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Frédéric Bouchard, the Dean of Arts and Sciences at the University of Montreal, and a brilliant thinker about the role of expertise in science in modern society. Last year, he chaired an advisory panel on the federal research support system that reported to the federal government March 2023 on how to improve federal investments in science, research, and innovation. The report has received wide acclaim for its rigor and advice. I'm grateful to speak with him about the panel's work, why it's important to think about funding architecture as much as the dollars, and various other meaty policy issues concerning research, science, and innovation. Frederic, thanks for joining us, and congratulations on the report. Thank you, and glad to be here. I want to start with your own research, if that's okay. You completed your PhD in 2004 at Duke University. Your dissertation's entitled evolution, fitness, and the struggle for persistence. In it, you take on the ambitious task of providing amendment to Darwin's theory of evolution. But talk about how you grew interested in the intersection between science and society, and how that work has influenced your leadership on the Federal Advisory Panel. So basically, I've always been interested in both philosophy and sciences, and I didn't want to choose. So uh, in CJEP, So roughly junior college for many of your listeners, I studied in natural sciences and uh, so chemistry, physics, biology, math. But then for undergrads and and masters, I I went into philosophy and for my dissertation, again, not wanting to choose, (laughs) I ended up doing some philosophy of biology, which looks a lot like theoretical biology. And what I was interested in uh, and still I'm interested in is how biologists define and measure evolutionary fitness. So when we say survival of the fittest, well, the fittest what? Are we talking about genes, organisms, species, and how do you measure it? And I provide you know, some suggestions on how to improve a lot of biological modeling. And this has taken me through the years to be interested in, well, what does it mean to do interdisciplinary research? And how do people from different fields, how can they talk to each other and how can they do research projects together? And that has gotten me into looking at what is an expert, like what is expertise and what should the role of experts be, like legitimate and illegitimate roles of experts in civil society. So that's that's my, I'd say in in a few sentences, like what is, what does a philosopher of science do you know, in 20, 2023. 
the terms of reference for the panel really focused on Canada's, or at least the federal research funding architecture. You were tasked with providing advice on bringing greater coherence, identifying efficiencies in the model and structure of federal research funding. The report similarly raises issues about fragmentation, duplication, and even gaps. Let's just set the scene for listeners. Why do these types of institutional questions matter so much? And how can fixing the architecture produce better outcomes? We think, so uh, this was a work by a distinguished panel of experts in different fields and different universities across Canada. And basically, through our individual experiences, we've witnessed, most of us have uh, have been or still are some university administrators. We've worked with funding agencies and we've we've seen international peers. Mm. And so I guess on a more basic level is we think it's not fully appreciated how important it is for any society to be competitive in research and innovation. And in in any and all aspects of, of our lives, of course, we see the impact of discoveries, but I think we underestimate the importance on a day-to-day basis of having a strong research and innovation base for any and all countries. Now, that doesn't matter so much if other countries aren't focused on this, right? Because then it just becomes, I mean, we talked about natural selection. Like if everybody runs slow, you don't need to run fast. You just need to run slightly faster than the others. But if people are running faster, if, if your competitors are running faster and faster, you, you know, you're in peril if you don't pick up pace. And so this is not just about dollar amounts, right? So it, I think we think it'd be a mistake to just focus on how much money is invested, although that's a crucial part of the equation, but is how do the different uh, investments flow towards the types of research that are necessary for a society to flourish. And we've seen in the last 20 years, Canada has done a lot of investments. You know, this should be highlighted across, and this is not a partisan issues, like governments of all colors have invested in research innovation, but has done so in an architecture that wasn't designed for collaboration across disciplines, in a structure that wasn't designed to help mission-driven research of the type that we witnessed through COVID, uh, right? When when there's an urgent need or opportunity, how do you get your best talents together to answer the call? The system wasn't designed to, to support that. And it wasn't designed to support large-scale international collaborations. We do all of that, but we do that with a, with a, a system that wasn't designed to do that. You can take a Toyota Camry down a rocky path if you're a good driver you'll manage to some extent but at some point you know your your neighbor in a range rover or in a a rav4 will do better than you we'll come back to architecture later in the conversation because it looms large in your recommendations but before we get there frederick i want to ask a question that i think has similarly loomed over federal policy since my time in ottawa Should university-related research funding prioritize basic research, what's sometimes called discovery research, or more applied research? How should we think about the research spectrum, and where should the government dedicate its scarce resources? So that's a crucial question, and a good philosopher will change the question. Uh, But basically, (laughs) jokes aside, is that actually we wanted to 
step away from the distinction between basic research and applied research, because most researchers aren't actually that segmented, if you will. They're not that focused on purely basic research or purely applied research. And most discoveries that have a big economic import or a big well-being import started in one place and ended up in the other. And it's not always from basic research to applied research, right? So basically, we what we focused on was a distinction between investigator-driven research, where the scientists basically, you know, propose the questions that should be answered and then say, well, I'm going to look in that direction. And that could be basic or applied versus mission-driven research, where there's an external need that's being expressed either by, you know, government or uh, community organizations or civil society or, but there's a need for answers or expertise. COVID is a classic mission-driven research need. We need a vaccine or we need new clinical practices. Whereas, you know, uh, most Nobel Prizes started out as investigator-driven research. Canada need, and any and all countries need both. And, and this is, most countries looking back a few decades overemphasized one or the other. And you could see it in their performance. If you just fund applied research, or, you know, you're, at some point, you're going to be recycling discoveries that have been, or actually you're going to license discoveries that were made elsewhere. If you just do basic research, actually you're limiting even your potential for discovery because a lot of discoveries are in applications. So you need a balanced approach. And this is why our report focuses on a system-wide approach saying we have really good tools for investigator-driven research Let's better support it because they're hurting. You know, we haven't kept up with competition. But what we're lacking are, you know, the funding instruments to support, well, interdisciplinary research. We can get into that. But mission-driven research, be it economic, societal, environmental, or we don't have the right tools to support that kind of research. And most other privileged countries have found ways to support both. And because they think it's the only way to support their well-being and prosperity uh, moving forward. And so we were tasked with providing recommendations on how to do, how to uh, level up, if you will, Canada and research innovation by, you know, taking care of the whole system. Let me ask another big picture question. University research model is generally predicated on self-regulation through peer review. But there are increasing questions about whether that self-regulation is actually an impediment to new and different ideas. The, the well-documented challenge is that Caitlin Carrico, the researcher credited with conceiving of MNRA, is a good example. Her peers had tremendous influence over publication and funding and essentially marginalized her because she was doing something different. How can we ensure that researchers are doing rigorous work without limiting them through the bias of pre-existing ideas or scholars? Yeah, I guess I don't share your assessment. I think overall, if you look on average, the track record of, you know, investigator-driven research and peer review uh, has been extremely positive. I think it, we're making a different assessment. We're saying it's not sufficient or it's not 
exhaustive of the types of research that a society needs. So I would not put it in terms of either or, you know, should it be I, I, we, peer review and investigator driven research has an incredibly good track record in generating prosperity, uh, discovery, and well-being. But I think what we've seen is that because our societies, where, because there is an increasing, ever-increasing role for innovation in our advanced societies, then it's legitimate for other people to care about innovation as well, and, and not just university professors. And that's good news for everyone. So once you, once you take that seriously, then you see that you need ways of sustaining a greater diversity of types of projects. And some of them, well, it, it may be, uh, we think peer review should still play an extremely important role, <clears throat> but is it su sufficient to support the whole range of uh, research innovation that we need? And this is where we think that we need new instruments. As part of the panel's work, you carried out a lot of consultation, including with various stakeholders. I recognize that at some level, interested parties can agree on big picture priorities, like, say, more funding. But below that, there are presumably some fault lines within the research community, including possibly between institutions, research fields, and even among generations. Did you encounter any of those fault lines? And what would you say to the argument, which I also frequently heard in Ottawa, that we, quote, spread the peanut butter too thinly? That, you know, that is to say, research dollars ought to be more targeted to certain institutions, fields, or scholars? Well, I, I'm skeptical on our ability to pick winners, right? So it's kind of putting all of our resources in a few targeted projects, assumes that you're really good at predicting what will succeed or what should succeed. And actually, I think the history of research innovation shows that that's not, you know, I mean, you may, you may win out every once in a while, but that's not the way to do it. I think what the, the largest consensus, and, and this has borne out with our discussions with international peers, is that, and again, this, is, this goes beyond the government of the day. This is across, for the last two decades at least, we haven't been ambitious enough. And, and this is not just government. It's just all of us have not been ambitious enough about, you know, how will we anchor our well-being and prosperity in 20 years, right? And that will take... You know, when, when you talk about moonshots or when you talk about increasing innovation potential or increasing productivity, uh, increasing the talent base, and I don't want to, we've done great things, but collectively, I think we've been a bit complacent uh, because we don't see how much other countries are, are being extremely ambitious around research innovation. Now, people may disagree about the strategy. So it's in our consultations you know, they had different strategies. Everybody thinks that, oh, if you give me more resources, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, everything will go better. But frankly, there weren't deep disagreements. Uh, there were basically, I think we all recognize, and when I say we, I don't mean just universities because we talk to industry uh, representatives with community organizations, first people and indigenous groups. We talk to a, you know, a very broad section of, of stakeholders. And, you know, there, there are universal concerns about the talent base. So do we, do we have enough highly qualified people and are they competitive? Uh, and this is not just in cutting edge science, you know, a good master's student 
you know, will go into maybe advanced manufacturing is supremely important for that business, right? So a young researcher is essential for the economy, even if he or she doesn't contribute specifically to research activities, but just because you have, you know, a higher quality talent base. And so across the consultations we've had, it was clear that there was a concern for the talent base in Canada. We're good, but the others, other countries are getting better and we're not keeping pace. And it's not just a question of dollars. And I, this is very important. It's a question of ambition. But the, the concern is, you know, it, focusing, getting back to your peanut butter, you know, <laughs> the question of spreading the peanut butter too thin actually is that the question, of course, is, is there enough peanut butter, right? So that's a concern. That's about resources. But ultimately is, are we ambitious enough? And that's, you know, we, we say we are, but actually when we, we talk to U.S. representative from the U.S. government, Germany, France, the U.K., Norway, and I'll put this bluntly, and I don't want to put anyone in, in trouble here, but I asked them whether Canada was a priority research partner. And basically, very politely and diplomatically, but basically what they were saying is no. Hmm. Because we're not, they have difficulty, we're appreciated, we're respected. So our scientists are highly respected. They, they want us in collaborations, but they don't see us as serious or competitive enough in research innovation to be priority partner. So we're privileged partners. That was one of the expressions they use. We're privileged partners, but we're looking at the ambition and the resources that other countries have put in the last few years, we're lagging. And, and this, I guess this is why the panel was convened. <clears throat> so the government, I think, is taking notice of this vulnerability. But even us, I mean, we work in this field and we were a bit taken aback by the, the widening gap between uh, Canada and other countries. We'll get into your recommendations in a minute, Frederic, but I want to take up another possible widening gap, and that is the growing distance between universities and the societies that they inhabit. There's a tendency for scholars to have a degree of attachment from the world that they're studying and analyzing, but at times that scholarly detachment can seem like aloofness. The risk, it seems to me, is that in a zero-sum world of, of public finance, taxpayers may come to preference, say, healthcare over university research. I'll ask you to respond. How can universities and their faculties better root themselves in the societies and the communities in which they exist? If you look at the history of universities, you know, across decades and centuries in Canada and elsewhere, actually, universities have never been so... Uh, linked to the societies that they live in. And I say that I see this every day as a dean. You know, I have, you know, professors working with municipalities to to look at, you know, their water system and and uh, looking at demo, uh, elect, election systems. And so every day, actually, I see academics in the city, if you will, and in a much more, I wouldn't say uh, not to to give the truth that has been developed, uh, you know, on the Hill, but actually kind of co-developing problems and solution with civil society. So I, I think it's more a question of perception than reality. One thing that's relatively new though, is that 
I have more and more professors afraid of giving interviews or going on social media because whatever they'll say, just like anyone in society, right? There, there's this concern that you're going to get trampled by ideological opponents or, you know, so, so I think there is, I have some professors who used to, you know, work with various groups and now are more skittish about doing it because they're worried that they're going to get trampled. Whether that's real or not, that's a perception on their part. But on the ground, actually, there has never been more genuine collaboration between industry, community organizations, and academics or, you know, university scientists. And this is not, here I'm not, uh, you know, I, I could lie and say that University of Montreal is especially good at this, but <laughs> actually this is across Canada. This is a general trend that has been going on. And part of it is that as more um, diverse section of society have been able to pursue university yes. education, they've come up with, you know, the concerns from their communities, right? So whereas a, a poor kid from uh, Lethbridge, you know, maybe 40 years ago, wouldn't have considered, you know, a university education. Now he does, and but he, he comes with his own experience and his family's experience. What do they work? You know, what, what do they think is urgent? So actually Canadian universities, uh, I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm just saying, it's much, much, it, there's a, there are much more collaborations with civil society and economy than there was uh, decades ago. That's, and it's accelerating very fast. Hey, Hub listeners, there's a lot of gloomy news out there these days when it comes to the state and future of Canadian journalism. We're seeing mass layoffs across some of the country's biggest media organizations. We're seeing news disappear from some of the country's biggest social media platforms. Well, what does this all mean for the Hub? Well, thanks to you, our loyal readers and listeners, the Hub is thriving. We're seeing record engagement across our various platforms and offerings, adding new voices, series, and content, and all of this would not be possible without your support. If you haven't already become a donor to The Hub, consider doing so now. For as little as 25 cents a day, you can make a major contribution to our ongoing operations and our ability to be a credible and authoritative alternative to much of the mainstream media. Make your donation now at www.thehub.ca. Let's turn now, Frederick, to the panel's recommendations. Its marquee recommendation is the creation of a new Canadian Knowledge and Science Foundation. What was the panel's thinking here? How would such an organization situate itself in the current federal funding architecture? And how would it help to solve for the fragmentation overlap and gaps that we talked about earlier? So, you know, first, you know, the, the big gaps that have been identified and the weaknesses for Canada around interdisciplinary research. And, you know, that sounds, you know, maybe like uh, something that interests only, uh, you know, university professors, but actually it's really important. Like if you wanted adaptation to climate change, you know, will be geographers, uh, hydrologists, engineers, economists, sociologists. So you need that type of interdisciplinary research to answer big challenges. So interdisciplinary research is something that we have difficulty doing in the current setup. 
mission-driven research. And so this, you know, it can be both kind of national interest economic. So that's the DARPA model, if you will, in the United States, but it could be much more on a smaller scale. You know, how will this change in the manufacturing sector affect jobs in this area of the country, for instance? You know, that would be a mission-driven research. That's something we, we have difficulty doing now and international collaborations. So basically what we were saying is we've got right now, we've got uh, some organizations in Canada that supports really well investigator driven research. That's more disciplinary, if you will, closer to a single uh, academic discipline. So basically, you know, some people were suggesting, oh, well, status quo, but just throw lots of money at it. And we say, well, you know, more money is always nice, but it won't solve the problems around interdisciplinary mission-driven and international collaborations. One other, let's say at the other end of the spectrum is let's destroy everything and start afresh with a single agency. And actually, so the UK has tried that and even discussing with them, it's not clear that it gives the benefits that we're hoped for. It hasn't reduced administrative burden. It has increased it because you're trying to fit everything in a single behemoth, right? So we end up with a recommendation, you know, somewhere in between and saying, well, let's, let's have a, a funding instrument that does what's missing. And that way we don't disrupt what's working, right? Which is uh, the funding councils with their focus on investigator-driven research. And let's have a funding instrument that does what's missing. What's neat is that actually most of the, if you will, the staff is already in the system. You already have employees that do very good job supporting related initiatives. So it's more a question of how do you reorganize parts of the ecosystem, give it independent oversight. So you make sure that you're following at the ambitions you know, focused and efficient. And that's the, that's the foundation that we propose. So it's using the staffing that's already in the system, giving it some of the staffing, right? Because it's our, it's a question of, you know, making sure the right people are at the right place, doing the right things and giving it its own oversight. So you remain ambitious and uh, rigorous in whether you're attaining your object- objectives or not. When I, read the section on the proposed foundation and its role in interdisciplinary and mission-driven research. I thought a bit, Frederic, about the push and pull role that that organization might have. That, you know, that is to say, it may fund projects that involve researchers or scholars from different areas, from possibly different institutions who are coming together to come to the foundation. But talk a bit about its role in helping to create those types of interdisciplinary opportunities and identify ideas or scholars or research where individuals may not be familiar with one another, but an organization like that could play a role in in bringing them together. So most mission-driven research is actually interdisciplinary. So just, just any mission, I mean, there are exceptions, but most missions involve expertise from different fields. So it, it will be important to I mean, there will be some urgent missions. And again, COVID, COVID is, is the example, right? Where there's an urgency to, to doing something. But other missions could be on a longer time frame. 
and announcing it like this is a priority area for Canada and we're going to launch mission calls right for research projects on this in itself is a strong like when researchers see that oh wait like they want to support like audacious and innovative projects you know in this area i've met this prof you know earlier last year this is how a lot of collaboration works the launching of mission calls in itself is a strong beacon for professors to think beyond when i say professors it's not just professors postdocs and phd students to think you know oh i've always wanted to do this but i've never been encouraged to do this very personally i'm a philosopher of biology most of the time i work with biologists not philosophers it was difficult to get my research funded right just because well i'm not philosophy enough but i'm not biologist enough and you fall between the you know the cracks if if you signal either on the interdisciplinary or mission driven okay we want that type of project for how to help canada respond to food security and you just say and this call will be happening every year for the next five years well the first year you'll only have the ones already doing it applying but then oh wait like i hadn't thought about that and so i'm not saying it's purely passive and organic but we shouldn't underestimate the power of the beacon most researchers actually want to contribute and haven't been given the opportunity and and this is i think we we need to i i meet you know a bunch of uh researchers every day you've got all kinds of types but many you know are highly motivated to improve their society uh in various ways and they may not find obvious ways of doing it and in many respects if we signal ways that they can contribute many will respond to the call you also recommend the creation of a national strategy for science research and innovation to bring greater coherence to government organizations and funding i understand the rationale it it, it makes good sense but to come back to an earlier part of our conversation where we talked about the risk of opportunity costs of projects that don't proceed or aren't approved because they don't fit within existing priorities or knowledge, how can such a strategy leave room for that type of work? How can we avoid the opportunity costs of limiting progress on stuff we don't currently know about? Very important. And actually, so it's all in the granularity of the strategy. So the strategy shouldn't say we should focus solely on non-lithium based batteries. I mean, so that would be too, you know, too um, micro in terms of that's not a strategy. That's a tactic, actually. <laughs> right. So it's not the strategy may be, well, how do we increase the percentage of PhDs that work in industry? Right. That would be a higher level strategy. So th we're thinking more of the latter. But actually, just having these discussions would improve Canada's standing. Looking at the US, looking at Germany, the UK, France, they do it differently. But basically, research and innovation is always on the agenda, right? Not because, and this is, this is important, I, I say this often, research is not a luxury activity of rich countries. 
it's the necessary condition of being an advanced society, right? And so most countries have figured out ways to make sure that it's a national priority, among others, it's not the only one, it's a national priority and that you need a way to keep check on it on a regular basis. So the strategy in itself, the content of it, you're absolutely right that we have to be careful not to, you know, fall into the fad of the day and, you know, plastics, right? And then just plastic, you know, it's, we have, but it, if you were really ambitious as a country around research innovation, there will be higher level ambitions, but also it, it provides a way to coordinate sectorial strategies. So in the last few uh, months, we've had, in the last few years, we've got an AI strategy, a quantum strategy, and luckily they're in the same ministry, right? But let's say you had a food security strategy and a AI strategy. Well, actually they do work together because more and more farming will use algorithmic modeling to drive efficiency. But right now we don't have the right instruments to say, these two strategies should at least, like these two committees or whatever should talk to each other, you know? So we don't have the coordination. There's, so the strategy is more about goals, coordination, and keeping us honest, all of us, right? Are we meeting the key indicators? Are, we, are, are they the right indicators? Oh, look, South Korea has changed its approach. Or is our approach still competitive? This is the type of thing where you need some sort of higher level advisory body that makes sure that the ambitions we need to have if we want to ensure our prosperity and well-being is being delivered. Your comments, Frederick, remind me about something from my time in Ottawa. And that is, in hindsight, it seems odd that research funding was often divorced from the government's broader thinking about its economic agenda. Even in the budget itself, research funding tended to be in a separate chapter than the core economic policies. Why do you think that is? And how have these other countries come to situate science and research funding more centrally in their economic strategies? So other countries, so they've been more explicit about the role that innovation plays in their economy. But they've also been more explicit on how research innovation is important to other national priorities as well. And so this is a relatively recent shift. Before it was just health or money, right? Are we saving lives? Are, these, are we rich enough, right? So this was kind of the, the promise of research was basically we're saving lives or we're creating you know, wealth. And we were devaluing other types of research that actually do sustain in various ways well-being. Other countries have basically had much more holistic approaches to research innovation. You know, if you want more efficient government, you know, you will need more social scientists in it using the best type of research to kind of drive, you know, efficiencies or productivity gains within government, for instance. So it, these are whole approach. So they've raised the profile of innovation in the economy more explicitly, but most of them have done so in a way that it wasn't exclusively an economic file. And I, I think this is, this is why I talk about national ambition and not just economic ambition. This has implications for 
our political sovereignty, national security, you know, health, mental health, just our well-being, whether it's a just society, you know, all of these questions depend on a lot of really smart people looking at these questions. They don't all need to do research, but they need a way of looking at research and seeing what what deserves uptake and what does not. So as a country, we haven't been ambitious enough for the place that talent and ideas should play in our future well-being. I think we've been kind of, we haven't been committed and we haven't shown the follow-through on any and all of the ambitions that we currently have about science. So we, are not, we, were, we may not have been focused on economic development, but we weren't fully committed on discovery as a country, right? And so right now, I think it's more a question of, for me, the, most, uh, the two things that uh, strike me the most is there is a genuine risk of brain drain in any and all fields. And I don't just mean in universities. This will have effect in industries, in government, because right now, and this is dollars, but we're not funding our graduate students enough. So the top talent will either drop out of research innovation or go to other countries, and it's happening right now. So the brain drain explains the urgency of, of this issue. But the other driver of urgency is that other countries are going all hog in research innovation. The most staggering example is South Korea. South Korea, 20 years ago, you know, you probably hadn't heard of Samsung or, you know, you may have had seen a, a bad TV. You, you hadn't seen like LG, uh, Hyundai, uh, Kia, right? So about 20 years ago, they went all in in research innovation and they went from below OECD expenditures, so investments, and this is all sectors combined, so industry, government. Now they're almost top in the world. And if you track their GDP, you know, it tracks almost perfectly. They basically reoriented their economy towards a very research innovation intensive economy. And it's showing dividends. For the same period, Canada has gone down. And we're the, one of the only G7 countries that has actually diminished, you know, in research innovation investments, most of it from industry, but th that's a more complex story to give, but it will have consequences for the Canadian economy. The other big driver of the urgency is that the U.S., largely around national security and economic sovereignty and the sustainability of its economy, basically adopted the U.S. CHIPS Act this is, it's around semiconductors and chips, but actually it's a whole scientific enterprise to basically remain competitive vis-a-vis -vis China. And then it has adopted the Inflation Reduction Act. The Inflation Reduction Act, we focus mainly on the industrial policy part, but actually there's a massive talent part, making sure we have the talent pool that can actually sustain and anchor these industries moving forward. And then Europe has woken up because of the U.S. There's this domino. China went big on research innovation. This has woken the U.S. It's waking up Europe. And now if we don't move and just level up our ambitions, 
we're going to be left behind as a country, and this will have economic consequences. It's a good segue to my final question. Are you optimistic that the report is finding resonance and will ultimately inform government policy? I'm fundamentally an optimistic person. And I would say like research is intrinsically optimistic because you think if you think hard and work hard, good things will happen, right? So the mere fact that they asked this panel to convene should be a sign that, you know, it's, it's on Ottawa's radar. I am a bit concerned. I'm not sure that the degree of urgency is fully appreciated across not just government, but across Canadian society. And I'm telling you, so it's, it's nice if, if you, your listeners or people in Ottawa say, these are important issues, we want to address them, but this is not the right time, we'll get back to you later. But actually, this will have genuine consequences for the well-being and prosperity of Canadians. Uh, because we cannot, you know, in 20 years, we'll, we'll either be consumers of innovation produced elsewhere, or we'll be producers of innovation. And, you know, I'd rather be on the producing end. It'll, it'll help me consume other things, right? But we cannot just be consumers of research innovation. It doesn't work. And, and we're not going to be competitive and we'll have difficulty paying for it. And so I would strike the urgency. And this is where I feel genuine interest and I'd say desire to move on this file. What I'm waiting for and maybe it's there, but I just haven't heard it, is whether they appreciate, where, whether we all appreciate that we need to move fast on these things because other countries are, and they're not waiting for Canada to wake up. Well, hopefully policymakers and, and Canadians are listening to this podcast and hearing that message. Frederick Bouchard, the Dean of Arts and Sciences at University of Montreal, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.